Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. We're going to plunge right into this. Governor Daniel Malloy, the 88th governor of Connecticut, is in here. He's a governor for just a few more days, and he's been courteous enough to take some time talked a little bit a little bit to me as he has to other members of the media uh, about his time in office. So first of all, um, how are you feeling right now? I mean, does it feel hard to let go or are you sensing uh, a burst of enthusiasm for your upcoming freedom? I mean, where's your where's your no, mood? It, it, it's not hard. Um, well, there are hard parts. I got to you know, pack everything in the office and pack everything at the house and get out in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm absolutely ready to live a different life. And when you say that, is is it because just the, the way that you chose to govern, you're a workaholic, we've talked about this in the past, the job just never goes away for you. I mean, it's not a job that you really have luxuriated in very much, I don't think. No, you know what, it's it's a combination of things. I mean, obviously, I, I do love to work and I do love to prepare uh, to make decisions and I love making decisions. I, that that's, that's, you know, who I am and what I am. Uh, in part, uh, you know, there's other parts of, of who I am. You know, I, I'm happily married. Uh, my wife and I met on April 6, 1974. We got married on September 25th of 1982, and she's my best friend. So we have that. And mm-hmm. I have three sons, two of whom are married, and we have a grandchild. There's, there's lots of ways to spend time um, doing other things. And, and I think also what people probably don't have in the equation is I spent 14 years as the chief executive officer of a fairly major city. So, mm-hmm. you know, the combined uh, 14 years there, one year running for this office and eight years in this office, it's it's been a, more than enough work for a lifetime. Yeah. Although, I mean, I do think that that's your disposition very much. And, you know, it's interesting during this past campaign, I said a, a few times, particularly as the Republican candidate just talked about one thing over and over. I kept saying, you know, Johanna Hayes can go to Congress and work probably mainly on one thing in her first term as a, a member of Congress. And, and the rest of the time, you know, an awful lot of her thinking and activities will be uh, governed a little bit by leadership. When you're governor and you know this better than anybody, you don't even know what's going to be on your desk on any given day. But it's not going to be one thing, right? It's eight, nine, ten things. Yeah, I hope so. Um, I, I, I hope that's the challenge that the next governor uh, has. Um, it's the way it should be. Um, um, listen, I, I, I could have had a much smaller scope of work that I wanted to accomplish. I just would have been bored, bored and unhappy with myself if I had uh, uh, eliminated issues that, that needed to be taken on. So I took them on. And, you know, I've told this story time and time again in the last few weeks. I mean, I, I never thought I'd have a second term. So I worked mm-hmm. as hard as I could and raised as many issues as I could in the first four years. And Lo and behold, I ended up getting reelected, and so I went back to the, the, the game book and, and said, let's take on as many issues as we can this uh, four years, and that's what we did. So when you say you never expected to have a second term, that, that's a mindset. I think Ned Lamont have, has expressed a similar mindset during this campaign that ultimately you, you, that frees you up to do what you have to do. You, you're not here to make friends. Uh, you're here to make decisions. Um, you were able to do that or be in that frame of mind and, and still – 
uh, still and still running it anyway. Well, you know, I, listen, I didn't pull any punches the first four years, and I, <laughs> I didn't pull any punches the last four years. I, you know, you, you, this adage that my mother burned into my mind that you have an obligation to leave the world a better place for you having lived in it um, uh, needed to be fulfilled to the highest extent possible, and that's what I did. One of my theories about this past election was that the campaigns were conducted as though a reform governor was needed, that someone needed to come in and do reforms. My theory has been you were a reform governor. Somehow or other, that message has not always gotten out. I mean, I mean, when we review everything that you did, all the changes you make, it's hard not to call you one of the most radical reform governors in Connecticut history. Somehow or other, that hasn't attached itself to you the way it should have. I, you know, th that may be true. Um, uh, yeah. One of the things that, that I came to understand is I, I didn't have control over that issue, I, how, how these things would be perceived. And so I had to make sure that my perception uh, for me was the correct one and let the rest of it be damned. So, you know, when I think of Villa Grasso, uh, I probably think about uh, Storm Larry, uh, and I think about probably the FOI loss and stuff like that. You think about Governor Weicker, you think about, obviously, the state income tax, you think about Governor Rowland, well, we know how that turned out. Um, how do you want people to think about you? If people are going to think about one, two, three things about you, what do you want them to be? Um, for the thing I'm proudest of is that um, uh, we put together an unbelievable team who stayed around um, over half of it uh, into the eighth year, um, and there were no silos left. Uh, you know, we took a multi-dimensional, multi-department uh, uh, approach to all of the big issues that we took on. So there was never one commissioner quarterbacking at anything. This was a group of uh, of equals uh, that worked together to bring about unbelievable change. And so you can talk about a corrections reform or criminal justice reform or education reform or health reform or housing reform or transportation reform. And every one of those issues uh, was represented not by a single commissioner, but multiple commissioners who were pulling in the same direction. So that, you know, that's what I, you know, that's what I'm proudest of, uh, about. And then all of those subsets of issues that we took on to an unbelievable extent. And, and I wouldn't leave out having really uh, tamed uh, the state's uh, state employee pension um, uh, problem uh, and having been honest about that and told the truth about it uh, for the first time uh, in Connecticut history. Uh, I think that a lot of what we did around that issue uh, has been purposely misconstrued um, by folks who wanted to run on uh, uh, the belief that we hadn't, hadn't done what we did. But in the first CBAC agreement of my administration, the second agreement of my administration, we really don't have a, a a state pension plan, uh, plan problem to the extent that it existed when I became uh, a, a governor. In fact, the Pew uh, Charitable Trust, you know, did a stress test uh, on our state pension and said we fly, you know, we, we passed with flying colors, that the things that we did and undertook to do have put the state in a much better situation. We made some limited progress on the teachers. I, I've I'm unhappy that we weren't able to straighten out the state teacher uh, pension problem, uh, but but I have no doubt that that's going to be undertaken and accomplished in part because we raised the issue. Yeah. I mean, I do feel that there are a million of these things 
I don't know. There are a lot of these things <laughs> that are still missing from the public con- consciousness. For example, I think you are the first governor since the system existed to make the required yearly payment into the pension fund. Um, year after year after year after painful year. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, that obviously one of the reasons that there was a crisis is that that hadn't been done before. And, and then the other thing. But, but, it, but, yeah. but, but there was something to that. Yeah. I, I couldn't have the discussions that I needed to have uh, and the pushing and cajoling the legislature to do the right thing if I myself was not doing the right thing. If I was not doing that, we could not have succeeded. And and it's not just the legislature. If I was not doing that, we could not have succeeded with labor. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I had to bear the, the scars of doing it, and it was painful, but the final product produced was well worth it. The other way that I understand this, and correct me if I'm wrong, I know that you will correct me if I'm wrong, uh, is imagine that Ned Lamont did nothing about pensions for the next four years. Still, what's going to happen now is that people holding the tier one pensions, the most lavish pensions people picture when they worry about or get outraged about uh, state worker pensions, those people are going to gradually die off uh, and die out of the system. And the people coming in to replace them are on a much different plan, not exactly defined contribution, but much, much closer uh, to that. It's a hybrid. It's absolutely a hybrid. But what people don't understand about that system is that if we don't meet our investment goals, their contributions automatically go up. And we have much more conservative, I would agree, uh, admit, uh, uh, investment goals, which really are meant to, to reflect what's possible. But if they're not met, uh, the, the onus is, is on the employee to contribute a larger amount of their uh, salary. And that's, that's built into that system. And, and there's another thing that I'm still not fully understanding here, but I, I've tried to understand over the over la, the last few days. It appears that in 21 and 22, the years 21 and 22, there are these trigger points, these cost of living trigger points, where it's anticipated that a lot of state workers will leave of their own volition. Can you explain that? Sure. Uh, if you work beyond that um, and you're in a class that has a, a superior level of benefits, if you work beyond a certain date, uh, then you're benefit package will change. Um, And it is our firm belief, backed up by independent analysis, uh, that uh, between the date of the the third uh, CBAC agreement and 2022, that roughly 16,000 state employees will leave the employee of of the state uh, to be replaced by tier four employees, um, uh, which is largely a self funded um, very uh, a slight contribution by the state and and primarily funded by the employee themselves uh, albeit uh, they'll know what they what they'll receive but but they don't know necessarily on day one what they'll be contributing because it will be tied to the return on investment so, and and so that yeah. so just put it in perspective we know we average about um, uh, 1300 to 1500 employee turnover per year mm-hmm. uh, we reached that agreement what a uh, uh, 18 months ago um, uh, the idea that that in 18 19 20 21 and 22 you're actually going to see 16000 people leave an average of you know what four 4,000 a year uh, is quite extraordinary and puts that plan in a very different situation uh, going forward with respect to the people who will will have become employed um, after 2011 or after 2015. And, and I mean, 
that's also a little bit of a source of concern, I would think, too. You, you, you've already downsized state government. What, about 3,500 fewer positions? About 3,500, 3,700, yeah. So you've already downsized a state government. Yeah, I mean, from, but by the way, yeah. I, I, that's never happened before. Yeah, no, you are <laughs> yeah. the, you, yeah, I mean, yeah. the, the workforce grew under our other governors. You have shrunk the, the workforce. But, you know, there's a certain point at which there are services that are valuable that need to be delivered by the state government. You know, the example that I always give, just because it's something that people kind of perk up about, is consumer protection goes and inspects gas pumps and makes sure that you know that if you're pumping 12 gallons of gas you know, if it says that on the on the meter that's actually what it gets pumped uh, but you got to have somebody to do that ideally you want to have enough inspectors so that they can do random checks as opposed to respond to a call for distress i mean i could give you know or you could give 50 other examples of things that people do in state government that are important that i the consumer the citizen the voter would benefit from so you don't want the workforce to get so small no that no that stuff no, doesn't no. Happen. I, I, i'm not saying um, that that any governor over the next four or five, six years could could tolerate an additional fourteen thousand <laughs> or sixteen thousand fewer jobs uh, in in the state workforce. I'm not saying that at all, but but the replacement workforce. Let, let's assume they're going to be cheaper. That, that um, someone goes from uh, we've reduced the, the size of uh, executive branch by about uh, over which the executive branch has control by thirteen uh, percent. Let's assume that goes to fifteen to twenty percent. The rest of those jobs still have to be filled. That's thousands of additional uh, new state employees com- coming to the state, but they're coming to the state with with a very different um, uh, set of expectations with respect to their benefits when and if they retire. Um, and therein is a, is a great opportunity. Now, you know, we were able to cut the size of government. And by the way, Connecticut as a state ha- has the leanest number of employees, uh, public employees per 100,000 of any state in the nation. And we dropped it substantially while I was, was, was governor. You can't do that forever. The reason we could do it is we invested in things that, that no one else would invest in. Technology, modern technology. When I became governor, uh, the technology the state government was using to run itself was probably eight to ten years behind the place I had left, the city of Stanford. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we were brave enough to make the technological investments, tens of millions of dollars, uh, you know, on a yearly basis to give people the tools necessary to make them more efficient so that we could uh, consolidate government and make it smaller. So just to review, you made government smaller. Uh, you transitioned newer employees onto a different kind of a pension plan. Uh, you replenished the rainy day fund, which was at zero, uh, I, I believe, when you came in. You paid off the loans that the REL administration and legislature uh, had to, the money that they had to borrow in order to sort of essentially balance the budget uh, before you came in. Uh, you reduced the deficit as a portion, uh, a percentage of the budget. And yet, this last campaign was all about like Dan Malloy, the guy who didn't fix anything. Somebody, uh, somebody's got to come in and fix everything because Dan Malloy didn't do anything. I mean, that's going to drive you crazy. Uh, well, he left one thing out. Yeah, okay. uh, also, I, I, prison I, population I, at a twenty-five year low. I, I, I don't know. I, Pick I whatever you want. I didn't borrow the billion dollars that uh, Jody Rell and yeah. the legislature had had negotiated for the next governor to borrow, mm-hmm. uh, which was painful. And it was one of the reasons that, that the tax increase uh, was as large as it was, because I wasn't going to borrow that money because mm-hmm. the economy was not going to improve uh, fast enough in Connecticut to, 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 to justify that kind of expenditure. 
So, uh, yeah, it, 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 it's frustrating a lot. You know, it's, it, there are a number of factors that go into that, and not the least of which is that, that people lie about it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that, that if you, for, for instance, and I've used this as an example, every candidate uh, who ran in the last election, primaries or final election, at some point said Connecticut was bleeding jobs. Well, mm-hmm. I'm going to leave office w- with the state um, having over 100,000 more jobs, well over 100,000 more jobs since I became governor. That, that's the reality. Um, and, and so to, let's put that in perspective. Um, uh, Jody Rell lost jobs, uh, uh, 36,000. Uh, John Rowland, in the space of 10 years, saw the creation of 63,000 jobs. Um, Lowell Weicker saw, lost jobs. Uh, so, you know, in, in eight years, we, we've seen the creation of, of over 1,000 jo- jobs and a decrease in all forms of government employment, uh, which I would argue, by the way, is not a bad thing. Um, and, and most people say they want smaller and more efficient uh, uh, government. So I, I, uh, it is, but, but that's, not, that's not what people who don't like what I was doing would say. Um, or, by the way, to make sure um, uh, that, that people didn't understand what, what actually was happening. And, you know, I'm sure I, I bear a, a part of the responsibility uh, for that, although I certainly tried to explain it to people. But, you know, we had people in the legislature vote against things that they never read. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and is, is part of the problem also. Did you see Hamilton while I was here? No. Oh, you should have seen Hamilton. All right. So one of the songs, one of the refrains in Hamilton has to do with you, you know, George Washington saying, you can't control who lives, who dies, who tells your story. Right. You know, if you're I'm, the I'm only, familiar with, yeah. uh, with so, the piece. So, so. If, you're, if you're the only person telling your story the, and if you're the only person around counteracting lies that are told or distortions uh, or misstatements, that's a big burden for one person to bear. Is part of the problem you didn't have enough allies who would also – Send that, tell that story, get that message out. Well, I, I think there's a few things that, that contribute to what's going on in the country right now. And that's quite frankly the decline in the number of people um, who, who report things. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if you look at the newsroom of any newspaper in Connecticut, um, it is substantially smaller today than when I was elected. Uh, and a lot of that happened in the first four years that I was elected. There just weren't enough people uh, who, who cared to tell the, the, the truth about what was going on because there were just fewer people. Mm-hmm. That's number one. Number two, uh, our sense of reporting has changed dramatically. When I first got in, in politics, and, and including most of the time that I was mayor of Stanford, no reporter would have reported something I said unless they verified it was true. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, that doesn't exist anymore in American journalism, and there's lots of reasons. I'm not blaming anybody. There's mm-hmm. lots of reasons for it, uh, in, including the Internet and, and different ways people garner information. But, but the role of, of the press in American history was to be the truth tellers, uh, and that, that's changed. It's to tell the story as anyone perceives it and let the public decide. Well, the public d- doesn't like to do hard things. Um, and so uh, they'd, they'd, they'd rather reject doing hard things than embrace doing hard things. Um, we're going to take a little break. We're talking to the 80th governor of Connecticut, uh, Governor Dan Malloy. We'll take a quick break, and we'll come back.
We're back with Governor Daniel Malloy. He has just a few days left in office. Uh, there's another inauguration coming in soon. Uh, by the way, uh, I'm lucky enough to have Lydia Brown, Brush with Greatness, running the board today. Uh, there's going to be another inauguration coming up. I think we have a clip from uh, the inauguration uh, in 2011. Let's hear how that sounded. Most people in Connecticut know ours is not a pretty picture. Today, I see an economic crisis an employment crisis, both fueled by unfriendly employer environment, a lack of educational resources, a deteriorating transportation system, and an enormous budget crisis of historic proportions, all coddled by a habit of political sugarcoating that has passed our problems on to the next generation. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the next generation is here. How's that guy sound to you? Uh, it's me. Yeah. That's me. <laughs> what would you say to that guy? Uh, get the job done. Yeah. Um, don't stop until uh, your last day in office, and uh, uh, hopefully uh, you'll make the kind of progress uh, that we've made. There, I want to talk in this section about two things that that guy could not have known were coming. One of them was Sandy Hook, and the other one was Sandy. Uh, so let's talk about Sandy Hook first. My sense is that Sandy Hook changed you and changed you in a fairly profound way. Maybe talk a little bit about the day or your memory or, or how, how you think it did affect you. Uh, it's, a, it's a day the likes of which you can't prepare for, although I think because I had been mayor um, of Stanford and had experienced a lot of deaths on 9-11 uh, in my community, I was perhaps better prepared than other people might have been. You know, the, the, we got a, originally a message that there had been a uh, uh, a shooting at a school and there was one one fatality or one injury. Well, you know, as a former prosecutor, uh, you know, that sounds like a domestic. Um, and, uh, you know, I think for the first 45 minutes, that, that was the expectation is that we were dealing with a domestic situation where someone had gone to the school and purposely killed, um, you know, a loved mm -hmm. one uh, or someone that they were attached to. Obviously, then things started to roll in much more rapidly. I got in the car and uh, got down there. A couple of things stick out. Um, I asked where the select woman was um, because it, it appeared to me that no one was in charge, not passing judgment uh, mm -hmm. uh, on anybody. But, you know, we have a lot of state police and we have a lot of local police officers. And so I had a conversation with the first selectman. I said, listen, you're, I'm a former mayor. You're, you're the select woman. Um, if you want to be in charge, that's okay. Uh, we do have a lot of state troopers here. We got a bigger force. If you want us to take charge, I'll do that. Tell me what you want me to do. I remember that outside the firehouse, and and we came to an agreement that the state should play the lead role. And um, probably within an hour and a half or two hours, I realized. Uh, that you know that there were a great many fatalities, and I began the discussion with the law enforcement personnel about when we would inform the families of what had happened, uh, the families that were remaining um, in the firehouse because everyone else had come and reclaimed their children or loved one. Um, and you know, I, I've told this story before. the The protocol for that kind of information exchange under normal circumstances would require an identification of the deceased before you would tell a loved one that uh, uh, their loved one had passed. And I actually regret that I lived with that protocol for um, an hour or maybe even two hours after that because it all kind of melds together. And by this time, we were having regular meetings with everyone and answering questions and talking about what we're doing, meaning the people in the mm -hmm. firehouse. And uh, the last 
time I asked about when we were going to tell everyone, you know, I asked the question, well, when do you think that's going to happen? And they, you know, based on calculations, they had already figured out that, uh, you know, that would be late, late at night or the next day. And here we had this intolerable situation for these families. And uh, I made the decision. Um, I, I did one other thing because I didn't want to do it in mass. I, I walked from the firehouse to a office building that was within a couple of hundred yards, 150 yards, um, thinking that maybe we could move people there, a family at a time, and have a, a private conversation. And I was immediately set upon um, with you know the press trying to get the information that they wanted to get and report and should get and report. And I realized that the only way to do it was in mass, and I did it. Um, and uh, I regret having waited for uh, that time to pass. Uh, I regret that I didn't immediately overrule the protocol. Um, we did another really astounding thing. We assigned each family a, a police officer or a trooper that would be with them through, uh, um, at least through the funerals that they, we knew that they would be experiencing. And, you know, that's now become, um, in these mass casualty situations, a, a best practice that really we created, I created on, on uh, you know, there. I, I wanted rather than having a, a, a different police officer talk to every family member that was there getting information, I, I wanted them each to know that they had someone that they could rely on, someone that, that would be communicating with them and would protect them and their family ultimately after we had told them what had happened. So it was, and then, you know, all the funerals and memorial services and, and all of those other issues uh, were uh, part of that December. And then... Um, um, it was a less joyous, I suppose, uh, Christmas than we would normally have experienced. And certainly, you know, any impact that, that I or anybody uh, who survived had in their lives, it, it pales in comparison to um, the lives that were lost, the lives that were changed by those losses. And quite frankly, uh, even folks who were in the school and, and didn't die that day have been profoundly impacted. So it's small in comparison. Well, you say that. First of all, I'm going to tell you something. There's no way you didn't have PTSD from this. I mean, there's just no way. Given where you were, what your responsibilities were, the things you saw, the people you were in touch with, the magnitude of this, there's no way you don't have or didn't have PTSD. And do you do you understand it's okay that it really hurt you? Oh, it, sure. Yeah. Sure, sure. I understood that then. It doesn't, you know. Uh, but, uh, but again, I just I, – I can't, you know – this is not a woe is me. You, you, you no, but it's it's okay, and it's not a woe is me. But I think sometimes you, because first of all, I think you've grown up your entire life with this whole idea that you have to harden yourself off against challenges. You have to toughen up. You have to get yourself ready to take on something. I don't think you really do give yourself a lot of permission to admit how vulnerable you, like any other person, are. And does that seem? I feel like I should be getting a copay here under the state health plan. But you know what I'm saying to you. I, sure, I know what you're saying to me. I, I, I you know, I, I understand uh, perfectly well. Uh, you know, I, I, I've said before that that I absolutely went into a depression uh, as mayor after 9/11 um, and and experiencing what I experienced there, and and that paled in in comparison to what I had to handle. Uh, or what, actually, I shouldn't say it that way. What I had to help other people handle uh, on that day and the days that followed. Um, you know, and that's also why. You know, when I witnessed a failure of the legislature to, quote unquote, produce a bipartisan gun legislation because the 
pledge had been made by the speaker that this would be done on a bipartisan basis, but the first votes were unsuccessful mm -hmm. um, that I threw myself into that. And I was more than happy, I suppose, to go on the road and take the abuse from uh, gun owners and, and, uh, and manufacturers uh, for, uh, I don't know, I think up to 17 different times because, you know, it was a way I'm, I'm sure to deal with what, what, what uh, I might have been going through. Um, but I also wanted to accomplish uh, meaningful gun control legislation, and we did it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, motivations to do any good thing um, are, are probably good motivations, and, and uh, uh, we accomplished that. Yeah. It's a very workaholic way of dealing with your vulnerabilities. Maybe in retirement, you take a little bit of time uh, to do the other part of it. Yeah, maybe. So let's talk about the other Sandy. Sandy, the storm, the superstorm Sandy, um, bigger than had been anticipated, and a pretty big challenge to the infrastructure of Connecticut. And I know that, once again, at a multi-department level, you ultimately you know, crafted a state response to the challenges of bigger storms, the bigger storms we'll be having because of climate change. But I don't know, how, how, how good a shape do you think the state is in for that kind of thing coming, going forward? Well, you know, listen, I, I think it's going to get worse every year, not better, because uh, the water levels are rising and they're rising rapidly. Um, you know, one of the pieces of legislation we got in this last session was to require new maps be drawn to, to reflect what, what happens uh, over the next uh, 50 years. Um, that'll be a big plus for planning purposes, but it also means that a lot of folks are going to realize suddenly that, that they should lift their house um, voluntarily and not wait for it to be washed away. Um, or that our government shouldn't allow things to be replaced or built uh, in, in certain neighborhoods. That may even have a, a lasting impact on, on the tax base of some of these communities. All of that uh, needs to be filtered in and taken into consideration if we're going to keep people safe uh, and if we're going to recover from other challenges. Now, you know, we went through Irene, and this is one of the interesting uh, historic facts of, about it. We got really badly beaten up by Irene. The, re the reality is, is that the, the damage done by Irene and Sandy in Connecticut was were, weren't very far apart. They mm -hmm. were basically equal. Um, New York City and New York didn't get impacted by Irene to any great extent. Um, as a result of that in the uh, October snowstorm that year, uh, by by the time Sandy came around, you know we <laughs> we drilled uh, pretty mm -hmm. deeply on on being ready for the next big challenge, and that it came so quickly uh, meant that we were, I think, uh, more inclined to take it seriously and and better responders to to those efforts. So we evacuated places that that uh, didn't get evacuated uh, by other states. Uh, we communicated uh, differently, and I would argue more effectively than than other states did about the actual uh, harm. And when I got called back to the EOC after a one-hour rise in the uh, water level in southwestern um, Connecticut, uh, down, down a portion of the state where I'm from, Fairfield County, uh, that was, we saw a rise faster than we had ever experienced in history of record-keeping. Uh, I came back to the operation. We calculated uh, what, what reasonable time to continue to advise people to leave their premises, and then we said, um, you know, shelter in, in where you are. Do mm -hmm. not move. Do not get on the road. Do not drive your car. Uh, your best shot of survival is uh, is sheltering in place. That was after a relatively short window of saying, get the hell out of there. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the get the heck out of there and, and shelter in place was uh, saved a, a number of lives uh, on that, uh, on that uh, late evening. And... Uh, 
Um, you learn from, you know, all experiences. And hopefully, when there's these gaps in those kinds of things happening, hopefully no one will lose the, the, the overall lessons that we learned in Irene um, and other and, and the and the October snowstorm and Sandy and all the other storms that we were impacted by. I also say that you know since we elected Nancy Wyman lieutenant governor, we've had seven of these things, and I blame it all on her. All right, exactly. It's yeah. the way that you. It's I always when whenever you guys are at the EOC and you're there in your fleece and you're talking, I always look over at Nancy Wyman and her game face tells me basically yeah. like how much trouble we're really in here. Yeah. So so you're actually moving down there. <laughs> <laughs> After all this, you're moving down to the shore. Well, I, I, we're moving to Essex, and um, uh, the, yeah, we're, we're going to live down that way. Not on the water, but we're going to live. I, I wish I could afford to live on the water. I'd, I'd probably raise the house, but I <laughs> wish I could do it, but I can't. And, and and I don't know, just very quickly, and then we're going to take a break. I mean, how are you picturing, I don't know, the first year of your life? You talked about your partnership and best friendship with your wife, uh, but she's probably at a certain point point going to say, look, get out of the house. You're bothering me. Well, listen, I don't, I, 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 I am looking for the next big challenge. Um, you know, I'm finally grown up and uh, I need a real job. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so I'm looking for that. And, you know, I, I, I bought myself some time um, uh, by, uh, I, I was recruited by a couple of colleges to, to, to teach and uh, got a very big fellowship and uh, at my alma mater, Boston College Law School, where you know, that's an institution, not just the law school, but the undergraduate program that, that I owe a lot to. And the idea that I can go back and teach a couple of days a week and, and extend the period of time for me to make a decision about what I'm going to do next is, uh, is, is a nice uh, circumstance for me. Um, but I'm, I'm looking for another big challenge. All right. So uh, if anybody has a big challenge, we're not live right now, so you can't call in with it, but you can email it to me. Uh, <laughs> all right. So we'll take a little break. We have one more segment here with Governor Daniel Malloy. Miss the Saturday dance Heard they crowded the floor Couldn't bear it without you Don't get around much anymore We are back. Uh, This is our third and final segment of a conversation, the last conversation I will probably have with Governor Daniel Malloy while he's governor. Uh, before I uh, ask you another question, I'm going to play another clip. This is uh, your um, 2016 JFK Library Profile Encourage Awards Ceremony speech. We have rejected the rhetoric of those who would have us bar our neighbors from our nation. I'm not saying that one or two people running for president may not mention it from time to time, but overall Americans are returning to the right idea that we should honor our history, who we are, and what we have said and done in the past. There will be other occasions when we'll be called upon to do this, whether it's standing up for transgender individuals in the face of religious freedom laws that are nothing more than legal permission to discriminate. There will be other challenges to those basic freedoms that we hold dear. But let there be no doubt that there will be other Americans who will stand up and say, not in my land, not in my country, not in my city, not in my state. All right. So that was May 1st, 2016. I think it's probably fair to say that as you uh, gave your, you know, your approximation of the way things were in America, uh, you were a little bit uh, um, optimistic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I uh, I did not think that Donald Trump, uh, I did. I was not thinking on on 
May 1st, 2016, that Donald Trump was going to be a president and institutionalized discrimination. And not only that, but uh, his vice president uh, would be Mike Pence, a guy that you have uh, sparred with uh, over issues of LGBTQ rights too, right? And yeah, refugees and and and, and yes, and and uh, you know, again, they, these are folks who will use religion uh, as as a basis to discriminate, which is uh, kind of abhorrent if you think about it. Well, I mean, I don't know, I. I how are you feeling right now? I mean, this is a very nervous time. You and I are talking. It's actually December 27th when we're talking. Where It'll be January by the time people hear this. But it's been a terrifying December. There have been lots of other scary months here. We've got a government shutdown right now. We've got a stock market that has mostly been in free fall. We've got a secretary of defense often regarded as one of the last adults in the room who, who resigned using Department of Defense letterhead to say he couldn't support the president's policies anymore. How do you feel about this? shape America's in. There's a little bit of, there are little glimmers of hope in that 2016 speech. Do you still have that hope? Well, I mean, there's glimmers of hope in, in the last election as well, and, and, and quite frankly, in the municipal elections in Connecticut the year before. There, there are glimmers of hope. I, 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 it is a more desperate situation because you have the president of the United States um, dehumanizing <laughs> the, the American population. I, I, you know, this thing about refugees, you know, we've been signatories since 1951 to, to a treaty that requires us to accept uh, our share of refugees. Um, and that was an outgrowth of, of the failure to properly redistribute refugees after the Second World War. Uh, we have individual agreements with, with nations to do that. We, we have a president who will abrogate all responsibilities uh, and treaties uh, uh, as if they mean nothing. And you know what that means? They will soon mean nothing which means that we as a country will not be able to rely on agreements that we have with other states because they are coming to understand that they can't rely on us. That is the dangerous proposition. Um, there are fewer and fewer refugees coming into Connecticut now because there are just fewer and fewer refugees coming into the United States. You won that award because of your handling of Syrian refugees. Although a couple of years before that, there were uh, refugees from the so-called Northern Triangle of Central America. There was a proposal to relocate them temporarily, uh, kids at the old Southbury Training School. And you said no that time. What was the difference between those two times? Because you were going to put kids in jail. Mm. That's why. Uh, you, what, that was a proposal, uh, a misguided proposal, um, that that the Trump administration has now done. Mm -hmm. We take kids and we put them in jails. We call them 10 cities. We call them educational institutions. That's all BS. They're prisons. We're putting children in prison, and I would not do that, period. Uh, I, by the way, yeah. we, we said we'll take, we'll take our share of kids. Uh, they'll be properly placed with families, with foster care, with... But uh, but we would not we would not open it. We closed that institution because it was the wrong way to house people. And now people are saying, well, let's open it up again and we'll just put refugees in there who, who, who whose whose crime as a child is that their parent brought them to the border. It made no sense. It was it was ill conceived, so ill, Ill conceived that they dropped it uh, once they understood that that there were people like me who rejected it. What's your relationship with Ned Lamont like these days? I know you've sort of left a, um, a, a blueprint or a set of hopes, uh, things that you, 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 policies you hope will be continued, challenges that you think uh, need to be faced. I don't know. Are you communicating directly with Ned Lamont these I, days? I, I, we have communicated directly. We've communicated indirectly. Uh, you know, I made a, um, a pledge to myself 
uh, eight years ago that that uh, whoever was going to follow me, I was going to uh, Republican or Democrat, we were going to treat them better than we had been treated coming in. That that there'd be a freer flow of information, that we'd be prepared to share that information, that there that there would be more courtesies e- extended. I was I was prepared to do that if a Republican had won, and certainly prepared to do it um, uh, with respect to uh, a Democrat. Happened to be happier that it's a Democrat. I'll be honest, but but I was prepared to do that. Uh, and so are our commissioners. So I think there's been free flow of information. We've shared a lot of information. Um, one of the reasons uh, we worked on this document that that, that 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 reports what we did accomplish, what we failed to accomplish, and what someone else might want to try to accomplish uh, was as part of that effort as well. What do you think happened in 2018 here in the state of Connecticut? I, the, the gubernatorial race was relatively close, relatively close compared to this incredible surge in legislative races. And obviously in the Senate, you've got Scott France losing a Republican seat in Greenwich that Republicans never lose. You've got Tony Boucher losing a state in the a seat in the New Canaan uh, Ridgefield area that Republicans typically would would hold. Ultimately, uh, there was a, a, a big sweep, uh, a big sweep of these seats that uh, looked safe. The Danbury seat, McLaughlin lost to Kushner. Well, do you think it was just one thing, a bunch of things. What was going on? I, I think there were a lot of things going on. Uh, I, so, I'll, uh, and I've said this. I don't think it's been reported as much, but I knew um, uh, the next morning after the the year before election, when Democrats swept into uh, a very large number of communities as mayors and and selectmen or majorities on the boards. I knew that night, that day, that that we could elect a Democrat um, as uh, as governor. Uh, we just had to find the right Democrat, or the right Democrat had to find us. But we could elect a Democrat, uh, and I never lost faith in in that. And and uh, you know, the, it may not be as big as as, uh, as some wins, but you know, I I won my first race by 6,400 votes, so uh, uh, it was a landslide. Um, uh, having having said that, there were lots. I mean, I, the Republicans deployed probably the the, the dumbest uh, campaign they possibly could have uh, deployed. They, they, uh, you know, let's run uh, against a guy who's already said he's leaving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 what they did. Um, and let's not distance ourselves from the president because we may offend some of our base. Well, they should have been distancing themselves as opposed to embracing Trump politics, uh, and they should have come up w- with with something to say other than you know we don't like Dan Malloy, who's already told you he's leaving. It was just a stupid campaign that they ran, and and they got spanked for it. Um, and uh, you know, it's probably a good thing that they got spanked for it because they should have distanced themselves from Trump from day one. Uh, you know, we have a, um, a a woman who wanted to be the speaker who had embraced uh, uh, Trump. We had we had uh, uh, Senator Fasano who who couldn't find a way to distance himself uh, sufficiently um, for fear of his own caucus. Uh, re, 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 you know. Resenting it. I mean, it's just it, 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 they had no idea what they were doing. And whoever they got from out of the, the, the state to tell them what to do, they should get their money back. I think there's another issue that people don't talk about. I'm like the only person who talks about this, but I think you're going to 
well, you might think, tell me I'm wrong. I think guns are still a big issue in Connecticut. I mean, we live in a time where parents are scared every day when they send their kids off to school. We live in a time, you and I didn't go through lockdown drills when we were in elementary school. We, but, but for kids today, that kind of stuff is a reality. Um, a lot of the candidates that I just mentioned ran as with, with more gun laws as an issue. Gun storage, I think, is going to be a big fight in the legislature this year. Uh, I think it, that's one of the really I, I, undercounted I think, issues. I, I take that to absolutely true. And and that's one of the spaces that they wouldn't distance themselves from on, with the president and the NRA. I mean, why the NRA has any influence in Connecticut is beyond me. Um, and not to not to understand that women uh, and uh, it were going to play the major role in, in deciding this election. I, I'll tell you another uh, crazy thing that came out. You know, the, the no the, the, the no vaccine, uh, you know, mm-hmm. in the last two weeks of the campaign. So, I'm, you know, there are people who are anti-vaccine. I understand that. Most people have their children vaccinated. So we have a candidate who comes out against vaccination, um, by the way, following by just a couple of weeks, a major outbreak in a uh, in, in a disease that that people can get a vaccination for. It, it was uh, who you, you can't make this stuff up. One of the things that uh, has been brought forward uh, towards the end of your time has been, I always forget the name of the, the Fiscal Stability Commission. I always call it the Doomsday Commission, but the Patricelli and Smith Commission. They've got a whole bunch of recommendations. Uh, everybody always says they can cut a billion dollars out of the state budget. Uh, Stefanowski said the same thing. They say the same thing. There's a billion dollars in there that, that's waste and fraud and fat. I think you and I both agree if there if there were a billion dollars that could be cut, somebody would have cut it by now. Did, did any of their recommendations in you? Well, actually, I'm going to say a couple of things. Number one, the people who law, who learned the most from that commission mm. were the commissioners because <laughs> they, they went in uh, with the assumption that they knew everything and they found out fairly quickly that, that they didn't know everything. And uh, um, they, they learned a lot. I think they also, you know, some some begrudging, some limited begrudging respect for what, what my administration had already accomplished was woven into to that report, including saying, well, maybe we went too far, um, at least in one uh, area with respect to the state employee renegotiations. Um, uh, yeah, there were a lot of good things in there. I, I, I think they didn't take advice. Uh, you know, they came to see me and said, well, we're going to push for acceptance of this report, you know, and, and I said, well, what you really should push for is, is you know, a, a receiving the report and accepting it as, as a document, not necessarily getting the legislature to say that they're going to do right. they, ev- everything. They said you couldn't pass just one part of the report. Right, right, yeah. Everything was right. integrated and connected, so right. it all had to pass right. so, as a thing. So that was the second thing they learned is that, that you know, <laughs> reaching too far um, uh, might have might have hurt their their efforts. Having said that, there's plenty of good work in there. It's not a perfect document, and and all of the things that they're recommending uh, are uh, may not be obtainable. Um, uh, but I'll go back to what what needs to be done, and that is we have to find a solution to the teachers' pension um, issue along the lines of what we did uh, with the. Um, you know, we we can't sit here as a state and sell ourselves. Uh, as a place to live and have employment, if we're telling people that their contribution on a yearly basis to a pension system um, in a $20 billion budget may be as high as $6.5 billion, uh, could easily get to $4.5 billion. That's not how you breed security. 
I'm, the, the thing that intrigued me the most about their report on a very geeky level was in the area that they called exemptions. So I, I assume we're going to define exemptions as instances in which an entity or person would be paying taxes, but for whatever reason isn't paying taxes. They say OFA or somebody estimates the total amount of that to be somewhere around $5 billion. I think they were looking to cut some portion of that. I mean, some of that's you, right? Some of that's economic development through exemption. Uh, yes and no. I mean, I, I don't think we created a whole lot of new exemptions, uh, to tell you the truth. And, and I think we did, in fact, eliminate some of them, uh, one of which we eliminated and, and gave into, you know, the, the uh, uh, over-the-counter drug exemption that we did away with for a year. And then um, people in the legislature wanted to put it back in. And I, I, I gave in. I probably shouldn't have. And we, we put the exemption back in. Um, uh, I mean, it's a problem, right? It's a problem that you have tax it's liability. A, it, yeah, I it's, mean. A, it's a problem. Um, so, I, I'm, yeah, no, I, I think uh, a broader-based uh, uh, system would be a smarter thing to do, and, and most people wouldn't uh, recognize it. On the other hand, you'll all of a sudden start to get into some really tricky things, um, architectural fees or our design fees or our legal bills. And, and all of a sudden, when you're, you know, when you're a corporate headquarters center – you know, when I got elected governor, we had 11 Fortune 500 companies. When I, the day I leave, we'll have 17 uh, headquarters for Fortune 500 companies in the state. Uh, they they buy a lot of services within the state. If you suddenly make uh, everything the corporations buy taxable, uh, if you do that suddenly, uh, and we pr- I probably uh, 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 well I I don't know what I I accepted a, a a a proposal by the legislature to do a portion of that. Um, uh, that was a mistake. Uh, the way it was decided was a mistake. Um, and so you, you, the pendulum can swing ever so far in one direction and ever so far in the other. And the, the, the key to this thing is getting it right uh, in the middle. So last question. Um, I live not too far from you. I often am driving by and there you are out running uh, with your uh, state police uh, security. Uh, I know you've got uh, something going on with your foot right now, so you're not running. But at some point, you're going to be out there running all by yourself. Uh, is that going to be a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, that's a good thing. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm looking for uh, uh, some alone time, which uh, I haven't had for, for a long time. One of the things I miss is you know driving in the car and, and by myself and having some down alone time or listening to a good book being read while I'm – you know, uh, driving some number of miles. I, you know, I'm, there are things that you miss. It's a great job, and it's a great way to live for a period of time. Um, but uh, you know, I I, I think um, more time just being alone will be very nice uh, for me and for my wife. Is is there any possibility that the book you're listening to will be for purely entertainment, or these going to oh, be yeah, history well, and policy books? Well, no, history and policy. They'll mostly be history books or 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 the like. I mean, that's but that that I mean, believe it or not, people enjoy that stuff. You know, there there are people who are uh, reenactors of Revolutionary War battles. They and, do and Broadway musicals about uh, it. I hear. The whole thing, yeah. the whole thing. So, yeah, but you know, yeah, I. I Read for enjoyment, um, but you know, but if given a good historical uh, book, I, I probably would choose that first. All right. Uh, Daniel Malloy, 88th governor of Connecticut and uh, 88th governor of Connecticut for a few more days. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. All right. I'll be there.